in the presence of God, I want to take this moment to welcome everyone to our studies in the Bible and those who are joining us in the virtual space. I want to welcome you as well. Um, last time we met, it was in the month of um, September. We're now in the month of October. And we were to have finished the book of Leviticus, but then I realized that I owe you some, some more instructions out of that book. So we'll do that tonight. And then next week, we'll open the book of Numbers. But what I owe you is I didn't do the feasts of Israel. And we're going to talk about those seven feasts, inclusive of the Sabbath tonight, give you some understanding as to the Old Testament feasts that were celebrated. And then we'll try to get a New Testament understanding of how those feasts have evolved with the coming of Jesus Christ. So it's going to be a lot of information. I want you to try to take it all down. Just, just think about it. In the last few chapters of the book of Leviticus, beginning at chapter number 23, God begins to list a series of feasts that he wants Israel to celebrate or to, com to commemorate. And he begins to list them in order, and we're going to talk about them tonight. You know most of them, if not all of them. And then there are two of them that I just want to mention that are not listed in the book of Leviticus, or do you see them in the entire Old Testament? But today, uh, the Jewish community celebrates them. They're very integral. And we may see them develop in the Old Covenant, but we don't see their celebration. I'm going to tell you what they are, because they're not in my notes tonight. How many people have heard of this feast? It's called Hanukkah or Hanukkah. You've heard of that. Well, you're not going to see that in the Old Testament, but you are going to get a glimpse of that. If you have your Bibles, look at John chapter 10, verse 22. And there the Bible talks about the Feast of Dedication. And Jesus is going to go up, and it's in that great feast that he talks about, I am come that they might have life, have it more abundantly. That's Hanukkah. That is actually called today the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication. And that feast comes out of an incident that happens between the Testaments when the Greeks desecrate at that time the Jewish temple. And that gives rise to the family of called the Maccabeans. You've heard that term before. They fight, they recover the temple, they rededicate the temple, they light the oil in, or the lamp in the temple, and thus you have the Feast of Hanukkah, which celebrates that particular event. There's another little feast that you probably don't hear a lot about. It's called Purim, P-U-R-I-M, and that's also another Jewish feast. It comes out of the book of Esther, specifically uh, you can see that in chapter 9, verse 24, the word Purim, is, it's actually a Persian word that means to cast lots. If you remember the story in the book of Esther, Haman, a device to destroy the Jews, he was casting lots and ultimately God turned the tables. So they also celebrate along with Hanukkah, they celebrate, notice that, Haman, he cast, notice the word, he cast pur or purim, lots. Pur would be singular, purim would be plural. And so they, they actually celebrate the feast based on what was being done against them, that God turned the tables and delivered them the feast of purim. But what we're going to do tonight, um, we're going to go and we're going to look at the ones that we see in the Old Testament, the ones that we know, and then we're going to try to understand how they evolve with the coming of Jesus Christ.
What we're going to do is we're going to begin. So there are seven of them, and I'm listing seven because I'm also including the Sabbath day as a high and holy day. So another term for feasts are holy days or high and holy days. These are holy days. Or another term is holy, listen to this one, convocations. Heard that term before? This shall be a holy convocation or coming together. So they're feasts, they're convocations, and they're also holy days. Simple. They're holy days because they're set apart for something specific. God has designated them for something something specific. They begin in Leviticus chapter 23, and the Lord speaks unto Moses, and this is what he says to Moses, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, concerning the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are going to be my feasts. And so they're going to celebrate these times going forward into the land. The first one we want to look at is the Sabbath, because God says right there in chapter 23, the Sabbath is a feast of some kind. It's a celebration of some kind. And this is the one that gives many in the body of Christ a lot of challenges. We're still being challenged by how people interpret the Sabbath in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. Who's observing the Sabbath? Who's not? Depending on what camp you talk to, they will say, we're observing, you're not. We might say, we are, you're still observing in a, in a different covenant. Let's just talk about this for a second. This is the term in Hebrew for day of rest, Shabbaton. It's a day of rest. And we're going to see this in Leviticus 23. The Sabbath is a day of rest. In fact, the word Sabbath means to cease and to desist. Does that make sense? To cease and to desist. So stop whatever it is you are doing. That's Sabbath, to cease and desist. We cannot teach the Sabbath of Moses without teaching one more Sabbath. And by Moses, I mean the one that God gives Moses to give to Israel. We have to go to the very first time that we see the concept of Sabbath. And that we have to go to Genesis chapter number 2. And we see God entering into a Sabbath. And so what, one of the things we have to know is that the Sabbath is first actually God's Sabbath. It's not our Sabbath. It's God's rest into which he then invites us. So the Sabbath has to be understood from God's perspective, not ours. If we start saying that the Sabbath is about me working and not working, we've started at the wrong place. Now, interestingly enough, here we go. This is the text. Six days in Leviticus shalt thou work, shall work be done. Seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, holy convocation. No work, it is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your, your dwellings. There we go. Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, we're introduced to God's Sabbath or God's day watch of completion or rest. Now, when we look at the scripture tonight, you're going to see that the word Sabbath is not found in Genesis chapter 2. That's very, very important. Nowhere does it say this is a Sabbath, but we're going to infer the term because the Bible says, and God rested, and he rested on the seventh day. So what we're going to have to ask ourselves is, what is it that God is resting from? 
So that's, that's the first place we've got to start. What is God resting from, one? And what is this concept in Genesis chapter 2 of the seventh day? The reason why I put completion there is because God is resting from creation. True? If I'm wrong, you tell me. God's not resting from his nine to five. He's resting from the work of creating. And because he has finished, he enters into a state of completion. You must not teach God as being exhausted based on what he's just done. (laughs) Because God doesn't operate like that. In fact, the text is so simple. If you speak creation into being, you can't be tired. (laughs) He didn't work it into being. He spoke it into being. So he enters into what's called the rest of creation. All of creation is complete. And from that moment on, God will create nothing else. Because all the work of creation has been finished. That's a key word. Sabbath can only come when things are finished. That's another key word. So now creation is finished. God enters into a day or a better term would be a state of completion. It's into that state of completion that he invites. Who does he invite into that state? He Exactly. Well, specifically the man and the woman to join him in that state because they're created on the sixth day he invites them to join him in that state of completion this is important now so adam does not have to create anything because everything has been completed so when you understand sabbath like that it's not a rest from for god something physical it is actually a state of existence for god And into that state, and here's something I want you also to pay attention to. In the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, unlike any of the other six days, the seventh day does not have an evening and a morning. Do you see that? In other words, this day, whatever it is, it doesn't have a beginning, if you will, and it doesn't have an ending. It's a state of being into which I'm inviting all of creation to join me. Very powerful. What we can deduce from Scripture, it's a deduction, into this state, Adam is there, the woman is there, the man is there, they're doing whatever it is they do. Whatever happens in that state, when Adam and and Eve, if you want, I'm going to use that term, when they sin, it seems like they're the ones that break that state of existence. So the first Sabbath breaker in the scripture would be the man and the woman. And now once they break Sabbath, God is not going to create anything. He now has to shift his focus to a different type of work. Agreed? He doesn't continue creating because that's complete. He shifts his focus to a different kind of work, the work of Redemption. Got it? So now he's not creating anything. The work shifts from creating to redeeming. And throughout the entire Old Testament now, that's why Jesus says, my father works hitherto and I work. 
So he's not creating anything. He is now redeeming what he has created as a result of Adam breaking that state of existence. Does that make sense to you? So then you have to think about the words that Jesus speaks on the cross in John 19, verse 30. Because just as he's about to die, he utters these words. It is, there you go. In other words, creation, sorry, redemption is now complete. Got it? If creation is complete, you and I are invited into the Sabbath of redemption. Do you understand that? Now, you can teach that without teaching people that you have to do away with the Sabbath of creation. Do you follow? Because later on, you're going to see that God introduces, it's the Sabbath of creation, but he puts it in a 24-hour window. Because maybe, even at that low level, there's some benefits to you and I resting, physically. Do you understand what I'm saying? But that's not the destination. Resting physically has physical benefits, but that's not the destination for those whom God has redeemed. The Sabbath that we're entering in is the same one that Jesus offered us when he says, come unto me, I'm going to give you some stuff. All right? I'm going to show you how we can keep the Sabbath in the new covenant. You tell me what you think. Let's just go a little further. There's the scripture, seventh day God, notice, ended his work, which he made, and he rested from what? All his, in other words, he ceased and he desisted from creating. Nothing will be created which he had had made, and then he blesses that day, sanctified it, because in it he had rested from all the work which he had created and made. Pretty straightforward. In the old covenant now, because now we're, we're living in a time when the Sabbath has been broken, so Genesis 3, 4, 5, broken Sabbath, broken covenant, fallen world. Here comes Israel, and God introduces what we're calling the old covenant or the mosaic sabbath this is important because you you can you can look at it the sabbath is not mentioned until we get to israel so you don't really see and you can infer that he may have known you don't see noah fussing about a sabbath doesn't seem to be mentioned guess who else you don't see fussing about a sabbath you don't see abraham talking about a sabbath but when you get to Israel, God reintroduces the concept of Sabbath. And he does it before Mount Sinai. Am I right? He does it in Exodus 16. Because in Exodus 16, he's giving them manna, right, scholars? And what does he tell them not to do? Don't pick it up on what day? On the Sabbath day. But Exodus 20 is when he tells them to do what? to remember the Sabbath day. So there has to be some understanding that whether it was said or not, people still knew or had some idea that God had introduced a physical Sabbath at some point in the Old Covenant after Adam had broken the first one. So Israel seems to know something. Maybe he's reminding them because after 400 years in Egypt, you can tend to do what? Forget. <laughs> So now he puts it like this, remember the seventh day because God did certain things. In the Old Testament, you will see it was physical labor 
ending with physical rest. So they were working, whatever you want to say, for one, two, three, four, five, six. And then on the seventh day, they stopped working. They stopped plowing. They stopped watering. They, st- they just stopped and they rested themselves physically. So you see what God does in the Old Testament. This is very important. Because when we are in sin, we are children. When we're children, God has to take us to what? Basics. And from basics, he begins to build us up until we can really understand truth. So this is called a schoolmaster, isn't it? And that schoolmaster is to take us to what? To faith. Faith is for people that are grown. Schoolmasters are for children to take them. So God begins at an elementary place. He says, if you can do this, if you can do one in seven physically, I can move you one step further, one step further, one step further. Much of the old covenant is written like that. If you can do basic things, basic things, I can take you line upon line, precept upon precept, until I get you back to ideal truth. Whatever God introduces, and this one is the Sabbath, it has to do what? Point us back to the original. Because that's where God is trying to get us to. So he's not stopping here. Agreed? This then is not a destination. It's something on the way to something. So if you stop here, you stop without getting to where God wants you to go. So here's what he says in Exodus 23, 12. Six days you shall do your work. Seven days you shall rest. Your ox, your, your donkeys, your sons, even the strangers that they might be refreshed. Simple. In the new covenant, here's my suggestion to you. Here's what I believe. The Sabbath in the new covenant is actually a release from the burdens of sin. So when you get to the New Testament now, after resting your donkeys and resting your oxen and yourself, you still have this understanding that we are still heavy laden and carrying burdens. So whatever the Old Testament Sabbath did, it did not remove the burdens from our lives. Does that make sense? Well, it couldn't have because then why would Jesus say, talking to, he wasn't talking to you and I, he wasn't talking to, can I say, pagans, he was talking to fellow Israelites. And looking at them, he says to them, come unto me, all ye that and are, and I will give you So certainly the Old Testament Sabbath did not do what he is suggesting needed to be done. The problems of our world are not found in resting from our jobs, solved rather, in resting from our jobs. Can you agree on that? In other words, the problems of our world are not solved on Saturday. This is how we have to think. The problem of our world, whatever you describe it as, it's a sin problem. That's the, can I say, the lowest comp. We're dealing with a sin problem that has metastasized in different forms, in different ways, manifested itself. And it's, it's, here's what it's actually done. It's killed our spirits, one. Listen to this. It's darkened our mind and it's hardened our hearts. And it's skewed our choices. And ultimately... This is the world that it has produced. 
if we're ever going to find rest, we have to deal with the problem. Do you, do you, do you agree with that? So this is what Jesus says. He says the real problem of the world, the real burden that we carry, the thing that's making us heavy laden is the problem of sin. So he tells us that in Matthew 6. He says, come unto me. So you have to make a decision. Are you free? Are you resting? Or are you in this category? Laboring, heavy laden, I'm going to give you Sabbath. Now what do you think the Jewish person hearing that would think? What are you talking about? You know what they would say to him? Watch, I keep the Sabbath. <laughs> what are you talking about? In other words, I'm talking about something that's a little more, can I say, involved than Moses' rest. And then he continues the conversation and he says to them, take my yoke, bind yourself to me, and learn of me, I'm meek, lowly, and you shall find rest for what? Thank you. So his rest is not targeting your body. Because that's not where the problem lies. The problem lies in my mind, in my heart, in my will. That's where the problem lies. And that's what he wants to give me, rest in that area. So if Sabbath is not targeting your soul, it's not what God intended. And I put the word ultimately on that. If it's only going to target your body, you're halfway there. You're still going to find some soulish issues. And he finishes the conversation by saying, my yoke is easy and my burdens are light. Can I make a statement? Tell me what you think. Sabbath also comes through learning. No? He says, "Take my, learn of me, and as a result, you shall find rest. So part of watch, part of finding rest, is finding ways to defeat ignorance. And specifically, I'm not talking about just knowledge, but ignorance of him, the one who provides this Sabbath for us. Remember I told you I was going to tell you how I believe? If you go to Galatians chapter 5, you start reading chapter 5, you will see that Paul begins to list some things, and he tells us in one of the verses, I think it's verse 9, but you can double check. He says, walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he continues by saying, and if you walk in the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then in that same chapter, he goes down and he begins to list the works of the flesh, which are the product of the soul. And then he begins to list the fruit of the Spirit. And then when he finishes listing the fruit of the Spirit, he says, against such there is no law. May I suggest that Sabbath is learning how to walk in the Spirit, how to live in the Spirit. If you can learn that, if, you can if I can master that, if we can master that, that is the experience of resting in God. And the accompanying fruits will speak for themselves. And again, such, there's no law that's required. That's rest. When somebody's walking, watch, in peace, when they're walking in patience, when they're walking, can I say, living in temperance and joy, all of those things, that's the state of Sabbath that God created in Genesis chapter number two. And the opposite is true. Where there's no peace, where there's no patience, where there's no love, there's no endurance. 
You're not walking in work and labor and the works of the flesh. So that's the Sabbath. It's some work. It's also this in the new covenant. I'm going to put time. You can put age, era. It's a time of effortless results. Notice that? Zechariah prophesied it. He says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. It's a time of, it's a time when you don't do the work. The spirit of God does the work and you get the results. Because if you're doing the work, then you're still working. And the spirit is the one that comes to do the work. And Zechariah says, this is the era. This is Sabbath. You don't have to work to be saved. You don't have to work to get results. You just have to believe and trust God. I want this in my life. Anyone want to say amen to that? I want that kind of rest in my life. And everything the enemy throws at you, it's to disrupt that rest. Or to get you not to fully experience that, watch, consistently, consistently. And though we're in the new covenant, can I tell you that at times, I, we, are guilty of doing what? Breaking the Sabbath. Anytime you step back over into your flesh and start doing things according to your flesh and anger and this, impatience, what have you done? You've broken the rest of God. Isn't that interesting? It's just another way of looking at it. So that's the first one. That's, that's the Sabbath, Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Now we're going to look at some of the other feasts that we know. We know them very well. I needed to give you Deuteronomy 6 and 16 because there are three major feasts annually that God prescribes. And he says, these feasts, I need you to bring your sons. And wherever you are in the world, I need you to come to Jerusalem. And when you come to Jerusalem, we're going to spend some time celebrate these feasts together. You know what they are. The first one is Passover. We're going to list them in a minute. The second one is Pentecost. And the third one is tabernacles. doesn't matter where you are. If you're in the diaspora, I want you to come home to Jerusalem, bring your sons, come up and spend whatever the duration of the feast is in Jerusalem with me. And there you go. See them? The Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'm going to define that in just a moment, which is actually Passover. I'm going to show you that. The Feast of Weeks, which is actually Pentecost. And then the Feast of Tabernacles. And then God reminds them, and when you come, make sure you bring something. Don't come before me empty. Let's talk about them. Let's talk about Passover. Notice in Deuteronomy, it's not called Passover, is it? It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what we're going to, I'm going to show you the distinction because Passover and unleavened bread are connected to the degree that some Jewish people see it as one thing. And so when they say Passover, they mean unleavened bread. And when they say unleavened bread, they're also talking about Passover. I'm going to show you how closely they're, they're connected. All right, I'll give you the Hebrew term for it, and then we'll look at what this means. Here is the Hebrew term. The word is actually, it's not hajj. Hajj would be if you're speaking Arabic. And hands up if you know that when you go to uh, Mecca, what are you doing? You're Hajj. You know that pilgrimage that Muslims, devout Muslims, once in their life, they've got to make a trek to Mecca, and that's called Hajj, or pilgrimage. And when they do make that uh, that uh, trek, they come back and they get a title, right? El Hajj, for the man 
El Haji, right? For the women, they've made that. Well, because Arabic and, and Hebrew are Semitic languages, there's similarities, but this is actually pronounced Hag. So the term for Passover is Hag Pesha. Passover, Hag Pesha. The Feast of Passover. Leviticus 23, verse 5 is going to show you. In the 14th day of the first month. Here's what's important. This feast is the beginning of months in the Hebrew calendar. But not the current calendar that they're using. This is on their religious calendar. So over time, Jewish people now have developed two calendars. One's called a civil calendar. And the other one's called a religious calendar. The Bible is using the religious calendar. If you go to Israel today, they're using the civil calendar. Just makes sense. So you may see some distinctions and some differences. But on the religious calendar, beginning in the Exodus, when God is about to bring them out, he says, this month shall be to you the beginning of months. So for them... A religious Jewish person, Passover signals the beginning of the year, religiously, right? But on the civil calendar, what's the beginning of the year? Rosh Hashanah, and that takes place in October. Passover takes place, I'm using our calendar, in April, in the spring. So from a religious standpoint, the beginning of the year, religiously, from Exodus, is in the spring. It's called the month Abib, A-B-I-B. This shall be the beginning of months for you. In the 14th day of the first month, at evening is the Passover. So beginning at the 10th day, according to what they did in Egypt, every household took a lamb, a lamb for a house. They kept it for five days until the 14th day. On the 14th day, they killed the lamb, celebrated the Passover because of what they did in Egypt. Today, there's a meal that goes along with all of that. This is, this is called the Passover. In the Old Testament, the Passover commemorated their salvation from Egypt. Very simple. Because God brought them out of Egypt, they were celebrating the fact that their lives were spared. The word pesha means to spare or to do what? To pass over. And so the incident was the blood was taken from the lamb, applied to the lintels of the doorposts of their homes in Egypt, and there was a death angel passing through. The death angel saw the blood, and he passed over, or he spared their lives, and they were delivered out of Egypt. And as they were coming out, God says, remember this day. I want you to commemorate this day throughout all your your generations, it's Passover. It's one of the first and great feasts of Israel. To this day, Passover is significant. When they're celebrating Passover, most Christians are doing what? At the same time, celebrating Easter. Right around the same time. The synagogues are packed in around that time. And right around that time, we're celebrating what we believe to be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Exodus 12, 13, there you're going to see it. The blood shall be for you a token upon your houses. When I see the blood, I will pesha, spare, pass over. The plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Chapter 12, you've got to read that if you haven't. It describes everything. It also teaches you where the idea of unleavened bread comes from. Okay, so let's go a step further. 
In the New Testament, Passover, because Jesus comes, and again, just for our understanding, he stands in the middle of the old, introduces the new. Everything has to be interpreted in light of his coming. How do I understand Passover in light of the fact, watch, that the lamb has come? And there's no secret why he refers to himself as a lamb who comes for the sin of the world. He dies. How then do I understand Passover in light of the lamb coming? Well, in the New Testament, Passover is seen as a time of global salvation. And this is significantly important for us to understand. If the lamb is crucified, and here's the, here's the trick, Jesus dies at the same time that they were killing the lambs in the temple. Did you know that? At the same time, it was the feast of Passover. And they hung him up that day, just before the Sabbath. They were in the temple doing what they were told to do from the, mosaic, from the days of Moses until now. They were killing lambs. And they didn't realize that the greatest lamb was being killed for them. And the blood was being shed. And somehow God was getting ready to spare the world because of the lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. Passover is a symbol of global salvation. It's a time. And so what, what the body of Christ has to teach is all you need is to get the blood applied to your life. That's it. Get his life applied to your life, and God will spare such a person from any judgment in this world. That's what Passover points to. That's what Paul will then say in 1 Corinthians 5 and 7, watch. Purge out the old leaven. We'll talk about that just a little later. That you may be a new lump because Christ is our Passover. Very, very simple. He's the lamb. His blood. God sees his blood. Spares the person upon whom the blood has been applied. Very, very simple. So now, if you want to celebrate Jewish Passover, you can. But you don't have to, to experience the reality of what God intended. Because the reality is, the Lamb, His blood, on our lives, we're experiencing Passover. In fact, we've watched this one. Watch this one. Ready? We have passed from death unto life. Notice the terms that the writer uses. Skillful. We've passed from death unto life because of Jesus Christ. The third one is on leavened bread. The reason why it's here is because right after Passover, once you finish Passover, you enter a time of seven days where all the bread in your house, if there's bread in your house, cannot have leaven or yeast inside of it. And then again in Egypt, God says to them, when you're coming out, I want you to eat bread without leaven. Number one, you're coming out quickly. And so there's no time for that. So they come out, they bake unleavened bread, and they come out. And when they come out after, God says, I want you to, for seven days not to eat bread with any leaven. Remember, I'm telling you this. For a Jewish mind, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover are one and the same. In other words, one goes right into the other. Right after Passover. That means if Passover is on the 14th, the 15th day begins Feast, or the New Testament writers will say, these are the days of unleavened bread. Okay, so let's look a little closer at what God is trying to say here. Here's the Hebrew term, Chag Hamasot. And that would make sense because even again, you go to Jewish families and say, what kind of, what kind of, what's that? He said, that's a matzah ball. That's, the, that's where that comes from. 
feast of unleavened bread, bread that doesn't have leaven or any sort of yeast inside of it, for seven days, that's what they've got to consume. That's powerful. That, that is extremely powerful. Okay, so let, let's look at what God says. On the 15th day, the same month, right? 14th is the Passover, shall be the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. What, what is God trying to get at here? Israel ate bread without leaven or yeast. What you're going to discover in the Bible is that leaven is going to become now a type of or a picture of sin. Something that gets inside and begins to rise and almost dominate the thing. Does it make sense that if we've passed over, then what we're consuming right from the get-go should be free from, from sin? Very simple truth. Because we're no longer there. And so God introduces them to an appetite that is free from leaven. You got that? What's, see that? Get this truth. The first appetite that God introduces the Israelite to is an appetite that's free from leaven. That's powerful. And I think in just reminding them year after year that after the Passover, your appetite should be for things without leaven. Does that make sense? Okay, all right, if you say so. Seven days, first day, put away leaven out of your house. And look at how serious God is in the old covenant. If he finds leaven in your house, cut that soul off from Israel. So he's pretty adamant about teaching this, this particular truth here. Here's what I think is happening in the New Testament. Here comes Jesus, and he introduces himself as bread. And again, you, you can see, this is to me what makes the scriptures true. I don't care what anybody says, oh, the Bible is written by men, and white men wrote the Bible. No, you can't, you can't do this. You, we cannot put this together for it to make such sense. He comes to a people that are introduced to unlep who eat bread all, and he introduces himself as bread. And he begins to tell them what, what, that if you don't eat my and drink my, you have no part in me. And he invites them to eat whatever he is. He wants them to consume that. And many of them are offended by that. Unleavened bread in the New Testament is a time of manifested bread. So now God is actually showing us whatever I told you in the old, this is the bread that I was actually talking about that I want you to consume. So if, if unleavened bread was our appetite, and this is the true bread, when a person is born again, what appetite do you think God introduces them to? An appetite for this bread. Make sense? So that the, the, the person who's born again has an appetite for Christ and the things of Christ. And we have to teach that properly. Once, you're pa once, once you've experienced Passover, your next appetite should be this. Ready? I am that bread of life. In fact, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. So if I'm teaching this property and we're in the new covenant, the person who's experienced new birth then enters a time of this kind of bread. Make sense? And their diet is adjusted. 
So you can't tell me that someone's truly born again, watch, and has no desire for scripture. All right, let's go one step further. Don't, don't, don't look at me like that. Let's go one step further. Has been in the body for a long time and has no desire for scripture. That's inconsistent with this because we passed over our diet is consistent with our passing over. Let's go one step further. It's also this. You, I'm going to explain this. It's a time of sincerity and truth. So for us, the Feast of Unleavened Bread becomes a time of sincerity and truth. Because the more you spend, watch this, the more you spend time in this bread, it's going to produce these things. Let me show you and tell me what you think. Remember I told you that I have strong issues with Christians that don't tell the truth? I do, to this day. And I'm certainly not perfect, but that's one thing I struggle with. Watch closely, watch closely. Look at what Paul says. He says, let us therefore keep the feast. And he's talking about the feast of unleavened bread. But not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice or... So you see leaven, those are the manifestations of sin, malice and wickedness. So you see that leaven is a sign of sin. But with the unleavened bread of... (laughs) That I can put it together. That's why Jesus would say that if you're going to worship me, do it in Sabbath and in the right kind of bread. So this is what we should be striving for, to make sure that my diet is unleavened bread. I'm celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread right now. My diet should lead me to a place of sincerity, and it should lead me to a place of truth. And when my diet leads me there, it enhances my worship. Because all of a sudden, my worship is consistent, watch, with my diet. So is it fair for me to say that my diet impacts my worship? And my worship is a reflection of my diet. So how does the New Testament believer keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Eat your Bible. (laughs) Make sense? Eat your Bible. He said, Pastor, that's crazy. No, because we have instances when the the man says, give me the scroll, and he eats it. (laughs) Because the Word of God is to be consumed because it's the bread that came down from heaven. You agree with that? Say amen in the chat. Say amen in the sanctuary. That's what we're striving for, keeping the feast the right way, the proper way, because we've passed over. Then you have first fruits. He introduces them to first fruits. First fruits comes right around the same time, right around when you're finishing unleavened bread. You're in the month of April. It's actually the time of the spring harvest. And not only are you finishing Passover, finishing unleavened bread, but in the fields, the ears are starting to open. It's, the, it's actually called the, the, the month of ripening ear. The grain is starting to come out, the first of the grain. And then God says to them, watch, whatever's coming out first, I need you to take a sheaf of that. Just take a leaf of it. Take it over to the temple. Wave it to the priest as a first fruit and celebrate first fruits. Here is the term. This is the most popular term, bikurim. Anytime you see I am on a noun, it's plural, first fruits. Rashid, what you wave, first fruits. I'm going to let you write that down. 
you're also going to see first fruits, not just in Leviticus, but you're going to go to Genesis 4, and one of the two boys understands the principle of first fruits, and that would be Abel. Because Abel brings to God the first of the flocks, or the bikorim, and the fat thereof. And Cain, which is interesting, though he's bringing a grain offering, does not understand the principle of first fruits. Abel is bringing from the flock the first. Here's what God says. Speak unto them, when you come into the land, reap the harvest, bring a sheaf of the first fruits, your harvest unto the priest. Take it. It's pointing to something. Wave it before the Lord on the morrow after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave it for you as well. In the Old Testament, again, you took the first thing that came out of the ground, because it's an agrarian, or the first of the flock, took that, gave it to the priest. If it was wheat, he would wave it. You would wave it. It's a first fruit offering. Thank you, God, for the first that comes out. Thank you for this first sheep that comes out. And, let, and they did that year after year. Exodus 23, 19, first fruits of the land bring to the house of the Lord. The Lord thy God. Don't worry about seething the kid in the mother's milk. We have no idea what God means there. <laughs> okay, let's go right into this now. In the New Testament, here's, here's what I believe. Can someone bring a first fruit offering on the Of course you can. You can do that. First thing that comes. But that's not really what I think a first fruit symbolizes. On one level, what you see in the New Testament with the coming of Jesus, and I'm going to show you that he is actually the first fruit, you see the church enter into a time of uncommon giving. It's, it's, un, it's unprecedented. What the church does in the book of Acts is something that we've never seen in all of history. At least not that I've seen. I've only read about it in the book of Acts. Because what they do, and I think they're using the principle of the first fruit, they take what they have and they sell it all and they bring it into the body and then distribution is made and no one in the body of Christ has need of anything. They have all things common. So for me, one of the first signs of understanding first fruits is taking what you have and giving it to God in its entirety and watch what he gives back to us as a body. And that's not an individual request. They did that as a body. So not saying, Val, could you bring your first fruits and he brings it, but no one else does. They got to a place where they decided to do it together. So there's a lot of fleshing up because they all had the same mind concerning their possessions to accomplish that. So no one was saying, you give, but I'm okay. I'm not giving or I'll give. They all had the same mind and God honored it in such a way that in that body, there was no need of anything. Tell me if you've seen that in the history of the church. And as advanced as we are, and as prosperous as we are, that doesn't exist. Even trying to figure out how you make... We've spoken, right, Val? How do you even make that practical? <laughs> how, do, how do you even figure out what my need is, what your need is, what it means for me to have everything that I need, what it means for you? They would have conquered, whether you know it or not, selfishness. <laughs> so not just giving, they conquered so many levels. They conquered selfishness because everyone had everything common. 
It's the verses that come after that make sense. And with great grace, they begin to give witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And then you started seeing people being healed in the streets. Because part of the travesty, or I wouldn't, I don't, is that the right word? Part of the, the issue of the body of Christ is that we are so focused on taking care of ourselves that we can find very little time to spend with the Lord. Am I right? Much less to have the kind of faith, I know I'm struggling here, to believe God that the sick can be healed in our shadows. Because I'm concerned about how am I going to meet my obligations. Hmm? Look at these verses of scripture. This is hard. I think I, I wish the musician had come tonight because you need him to play here. Neither was there any among them that lacked. As many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold. Watch closely. Watch those. And laid them down at the apostles' feet. Distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. That's an amazing, thank you so much. That's an amazing place for the body of Christ to be. And I've not seen it outside of the book of Acts. Have you? I've not seen it. And if, it, if it's in the book of Acts, then that means it's doable for the body of Christ. That is Passover, unleavened bread, Sabbath, all wrapped up in one. They got it. They got it. First fruits in the New Testament is also an expectancy of resurrection, meaning that because Jesus is defined in the book of Corinthians as the first fruits of them that slept, and because he got up, first fruit actually says, if I take it and give it to the priests, what God does with that first fruit is he guarantees the remainder of the harvest. So that simple act of faith, when I take that sheaf, that sheep, and I bring it, what I'm saying to God is I want you to watch over what's yet to come out of the ground and let the harvest be okay. Well, Jesus becomes the first fruits of them that go down and come up. And as a result, because he has come up, there is an expectation that we shall also come up as well. So I'll show you where Paul writes this. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept or died. And then he tells us why now. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards they that are at Christ at his coming. Because he got up, the resurrection is guaranteed. That's the principle. So if it works in the resurrection, it works in every other area when we understand the power of this principle. That's first fruits. Then we go to number five. I'm going to go a little faster. It's called weeks. But we don't call it weeks in the church. We call it Pentecost. But in the Bible, it's called weeks. The reason why it's called weeks is that after Passover, they then begin to count weeks. They've got to count seven weeks before they get to Pentecost. So they count week one, week two, week three, and they end up with, if you count seven, what's seven times seven? And then you add one, you get 50. So at the end of the seventh cycle, the day after, the 50th day becomes Pentecost. And that's why we call it Pentecost. It's a Greek term that means 50th. So on the 50th, day after counting these weeks then we have pentecost which is a harvest festival 
You can also use this to figure out how long Jesus was on the earth with his disciples and how long they spent in the upper room. And when you do the math, you will then conclude that unity is not an act of the Spirit. Unity is a decision. (laughs) Are you with me? So this praying God make us one, God, no, it's a decision. Because Jesus walks the earth, do you know how much? For 40 days after his resurrection. And he resurrects the first day of the week after on the 15th. He actually comes up on the day of unleavened bread, right? And he walks for 40 days. Then 40 subtract 50, what do you get? 10. Sorry, did I do it right? 50 subtract 40, you get 10. He leaves them on the 40th day. They go to the upper room and they spend 10 days. And when the day of Pentecost was fully, you see that? It took them 10 days to decide that they wanted to unify. And how do I know that, Pastor? Because they did that without the Holy Ghost. (laughs) Am I wrong? Y'all looking at me like I'm wrong. They did that before the Holy Ghost came. So that when the Holy Ghost came, they were all on one accord, in one place. Unity is a decision. It's not a prayer. (laughs) And the reality is we've just decided (laughs) that we'd rather continue our dogmas, our denominations, our divisions. Make a decision. It can happen. Ten days. Everybody said we're on one accord. And the Spirit came. Here's what Pentecost is. Hag Shavuot. Feast of weeks. Leviticus 23, 15, 16, 21. It's weeks because we're counting those weeks. 49 days. Again, it's another harvest festival. Can I go, go one step further? There's the, there's the text. You shall count from the morrow after the Sabbath. Notice, start counting. From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Seven Sabbaths or seven weeks. And then it shall be complete. That's going to be, and he goes on to say, new meat offering, bring it. You shall number, sorry, there it is. You shall number 50 days. And that's where you get Pentecost from. Then you shall proclaim the self-same day, a holy convocation. That's the Pentecost. Again, in, in the Old Testament, it was a spring-summer fest, uh, harvest. They were going to then also bring in what was in the field and bring the harvest in as well. Part of that celebration was was the harvest. Notice the key, harvest is connected to Pentecost. You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, first fruits of, of the wheat harvest. Harvest is the key word. In the New Testament, here's what we see when it comes to Pentecost. Number one, it's a time of a global outpouring of the Spirit. So God pours out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Globally, upon all flesh, Peter says, and he starts in Jerusalem, and he begins to pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. Pentecost has to do with outpouring. Well, what's the purpose of God pouring out his Spirit on the day of Pentecost? I hope I'm not going too fast. Um, Jim, I'm going to go past these ones, because we all know this scripture very well. Uh, yeah, we know this quite well. Thank you so much. Here's what I think is really at the heart of Pentecost. It's a time of global harvesting of souls. 
That's what I think God is concerned with. In the same way that it was a spring summer harvest, everything that was in the field, God says, bring it in. Everything that's in the field of humanity, God wants it brought in. So if somebody says I'm Pentecostal, I would say, you mean you believe in the harvest of the world? You believe in souls getting saved. But when you talk to somebody and say they're Pentecostal, what do you think they're going to talk about? Speaking in tongues. <laughs> so I'm trying to, I, I think we just need to go back in. God is concerned with gleaning the field. He's concerned with the harvest. And so that's what he does on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 souls, and the next day, 5,000 souls, and so on, and so on. Because Pentecost is about bringing the harvest in for God. The Holy Spirit comes to harvest the earth. Do you all believe that? That's why he's here. He's here to teach people that Passover has been accomplished, and Sabbath is made available. Now come on in. And God begins to glean the field. In Acts 2.17, you'll, you'll see this. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and make your division, sons, daughters, handmaids, everyone, servants alike. Everyone gets this if they believe. If they believe. That's Pentecost. The sixth one, we're almost home, just a little before eight. I'm going to do two in one, trumpets and atonement. As you're getting down now, you've gone through the summer, you've come through the spring, you're getting down closer to the fall, God introduces something called shofar, blowing up the trumpets. And this one, by the way, is an extremely important feast to Israel, the Day of Atonement. And they still do it today. It's perhaps, I would think, other than Passover, the most holy of days for the Jewish community. And of course, they're going to celebrate it in the seventh month on their calendar. It would equate to our October. So right now, watch this. As we get ready to go into Thanksgiving in the Jewish community, they're getting ready for Yom Kippur. And they take this one pretty seriously for, 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 for certain apparent reasons because this is the moment where this is almost like for the Jewish community, if I can say this, this is their month of confession. <laughs> Right? Everything that we've done incorrectly as a people, as a nation, we can come and God will cover our sins and we can get a fresh start for another year again. A lot of things happen, by the way, in the seventh month. Trumpets, uh, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles all happen in October. Extremely significant month for the Jewish community. It's called Shofar, trumpets, and that's where we get the the shofar, the blowing of the ram's horn. And then the Day of Atonement is called Yom Kippurim. The Day of Atonement. The word atonement means to cover. It's very simple. Sins will be covered once they're confessed. Sins will be covered on that day. And that's the day, of course, in the Old Testament that the priest would go into the Holy of Holies that one time with blood to make atonement. Seventh month, first day of the month, Sabbath, start by blowing the trumpets. Then we're going to wait a few more days. And then afterwards, we're going to have the Day of Atonement. On the 10th day, seventh month, that's the Day of Atonement. Holy, you shall afflict your souls, offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And the priest will do the rest for them. 
So in the Old Testament, Israel blew the trumpet for specific purposes. And so when God says, blow the trumpet, now there's specific purposes. And so they enter into a time of blowing trumpets. Could also be signifying the start of a year, battle, whatever it is. But they're celebrating the blowing of trumpets. Here's an example of blowing the trumpet in Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. That's just an example. So when you get to the New Testament, the idea of trumpets signals a time of awakening and readiness. So here's its fulfillment now. We're not blowing any literal trumpets today, but there is a sounding in the Spirit in the New Testament that says either we are ready or are we awake. And you may see this from time to time throughout where God sends, watch, an alarm to wake up his people or... As he's coming down, the Bible teaches us that when he comes, he's coming with the sound of the trump. So it points to two things, either awakening or readiness. I would argue this, that only those that have ears will hear the trumpets in the New Testament. Make sense? So it's not that one Sunday I'm going to come out here or somebody's going to come out here and blow a literal shofar, but there are sounds in the Spirit that are connected to the idea of blowing trumpets in the Old Testament for specific purposes at different intervals in the body of Christ throughout time. And those that can hear will hear. And ultimately, it culminates with those who are listening for the coming of the Lord. They're awake and they are ready. There's the text. He comes with a shout, the voice, and with the trump of God. And people who are awake and ready will respond. This is for now atonement. It's Israel's national day of covering for sins. This is atonement. Significant day. The entire nation can get its sins covered. Watch once a year. Then we start over again. And the reason why we start over is because our sins are being covered by animal blood, which cannot do the job in totality. So we've got to do this over and over annually each year. On this day, the high priest has a significant job. He himself has to make sure that his life is in order for this day because he has to represent the nation with the blood on that day. So here's what he has to do, and he has to be very transparent to God. He cannot fake it because if he goes into the Holy of Holies with the blood for the nation, but his life is not in order, he's going to die. So he knows that. <laughs> so even if he'd been messing up... <laughs> Right around coming closer to atonement, I'm sure he went on fasting. I would, I would surmise that he started to say, if he wasn't taking it seriously, he started, I believe you. Because <laughs> his life. And so you know what they did? Here's the humor. To just let him know that they knew that there's a possibility that he may not be living right, they tied a rope to his leg. Did you know that? They tied a rope to his leg, and he had... <laughs> You know us, right? How bold folks, take it off, take it off. I'm living right. Dare you judge me. So he goes in there with the rope on his leg. The bells are going on his garment and they're listening for the bells. Ting, 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 ting. And the fruit are popping between the bells and they're listening because they can't go in. They're on the outside. And if they don't hear the bells, <laughs> they know he's dead. <laughs> 
because they can't go in there. You see how significant it is for him. You see the responsibility of Aaron or his sons on an annual basis to live a certain way to represent the people on the Day of Atonement. Obviously, that's not done today, but there's no temple. And that's another one of the reasons why Jewish people don't really do a lot of these things. They don't believe that these things have been fulfilled. There just isn't a temple. And so without the temple, there's no central place to do all of these things. So in some eschatology, some Christians believe, I don't, that Jews are going to rebuild the temple. I personally don't believe that, but it's up for conversation. Um, In the New Testament, it's simple, isn't it? The Day of Atonement is a time, if it's global outpouring, the Spirit is being poured out, then guess what? The sins of the world, is that simple, right? Have been watched? You don't believe that. You believe, you believe that people's sins are covered when they confess Jesus. I'm telling you that people's sins are covered because of Jesus. There's a difference. Not when they confess Jesus, because of Jesus. When they confess him, they receive the benefits of having their sins been covered. This is why the church, I think, has got it wrong. We should be telling the world, your sins have already been forgiven. Thank you, ladies. Some people are, should I say amen? I want to think I agree with that heretic up there. I'm telling you, he is the atonement that God was pointing to. So when John sees him, John says, watch, behold the Lamb of God that does what? Read it loud, everyone. Taketh away the sin of Oromichael, Barbara George. <laughs> taketh away the sin, singular, of the world, not the sins of the world, which are manifestations of the sin principle, but he takes away the principle of sin. And you've got to tell people your sins have been dealt with because he's dealt with sin. (laughs) Does that make sense? So there are people walking around, their sin has been forgiven, but they're still sinning because they're ignorant of what has been done on their behalf. So you go into all the nations, preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The approach is just slightly different. I'm telling you, most Christians believe that your sins are forgiven when you come and repent of your sins. Your sins are forgiven because of his atoning death. The day of atonement took place, listen carefully, when he died, he switched from being the first fruit and he came up as the high priest. (laughs) He's doing a lot. He's working hard. He comes up as the high priest carrying his own blood. Am I teaching right? And because he's acting out the day of atonement, he's walking. And Mary sees him in the garden. And she says, Rabboni. And he says to her, don't touch me. Do you understand? 
Because on the day of atonement, as the priests walked through the tabernacle, through the courtyard, into, he could not be touched by the people. And he, he qualifies, he says, don't touch me because I've not yet ascended to my father and your God. In other words, I'm going someplace to make atonement for you. Then when I come back, you can touch me. And then the writer explains in the book of Hebrews, he enters into the holy of holies in the heavenlies with his own blood to make atonement for our sins. Our sins are covered in the heavens. Oh my God. Not the church's sins. The sin of the world is covered by Jesus. Because God sent him, not for the church, God sent him for the world. And then out of that world, God forms a church by calling people out of the world. Church has got this little Jesus that just deals with us at an altar on Sunday morning. That's when he starts to work. Watch, because it's Sabbath, all the works are finished. So when somebody comes to an altar and they accept Jesus, they enter into something that's already been done for them. Part of what I teach, I don't know what you think about this, is You don't get saved when you accept Jesus. (laughs) You actualize something that's already been done for you. So your faith opens up something that was always there that you weren't participating in because you didn't believe. (laughs) It's sitting right there. It's been given to all of us. And the reason why you preach the gospel is so that faith may come by and hearing by the And then once somebody believes, the door opens, and what's been sitting there all the time, they actualize it. You see the difference there? You got a whole lot of saved people walking around in darkness because they don't know what's been done for them. And Satan does not want them to know, and the church is not doing a very good job. And then here's the last one, then we'll take some questions. The last feast is tabernacles. It's the last one in the month of October tabernacles, in gatherings. This is whatever is left in the field. If there's anything out there, bring it in. We can bring it in. But it's more than just a harvest. It's, it's, it's Hag HaSukot, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's beautiful. Leviticus 23, hope I'm not writing too, going too fast. Tell the children of Israel, on the 15th day, notice, 10th day is atonement, 15th is tabernacles, shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days. What they literally did in the Old Testament was they built these booths, these mini tabernacles made out of um, uh, straw, leaves, and things like that. And they actually pitched them in Jerusalem, and for seven days they lived inside of them. And the whole idea was that in the same way that you lived with us in the wilderness, God, we're going to live with you for seven days in tabernacles as well. Here's, here's what it pointed to. Israel dwelt in tents with God for seven days because God dwelt in a tent with them all through the wilderness. And so he calls them into tabernacles. But it's also called ingatherings as well. Can I click, guys? Okay. So remember, they're dwelling in tents, mirroring what happened in the wilderness with God. Tabernacles. This one is beautiful, by the way. The key word is dwelling. They're dwelling with God. Here's the the verse. 
You shall dwell in booths or tabernacles seven days. All Israelites that are born shall dwell in booths. Spend some time dwelling with me and I with you. Watch. This is the last feast. Watch. It's the last one. So this is coming to the end of the year. Notice the one that God chooses. The one that speaks of dwelling them with him, him with them. Dwelling. Here's where we get it. In the New Testament, tabernacle symbolizes this, that God is, watch, everlastingly with us. So not only are we dwelling with him, but he is dwelling in us in an everlasting way. This is what Jesus was trying to hint at when he says to his disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. One of the terms or the names given to Jesus when he's coming, he is called Emmanuel, God with us. Quote another scripture, and the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. So you see that he, he is forever with us. This is the fulfillment of tabernacles. He has chosen to dwell with us as we live with him to the end of the age. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Then, because this is true, it leads us. And then we go, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the world or the age or the aeon. Watch this one. It also leads us to an expectancy that the God that's with us right now, dwelling in us, watch, eternally we're going to dwell with him. And this, this is a, another lengthy conversation about what it means to dwell with God and he dwelling with us. But this is the promise. Eternally, we're going to dwell with God. I think this is a beautiful place to close our, our teaching tonight on this promise. Ready? I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And the writer does this thing, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Those are the seven feasts and how they work themselves out into fulfillment. We are blessed beyond measure because he's not asking you to keep these feasts the way they did. He came and he fulfilled them so that you can experience Passover, I can experience Passover, you might experience, I experience the covering of my sins, a tabernacling God dwelling with us, a God that only asks us to make sure that in our diet there's no leaven in the things we consume. There's too many promises in my thinking given to the body for us to live, me, you, where we often live. Would you agree with me on this one? Then we'll do Q&As if there are any questions. We often live far, far below privilege. No? Far, far below privilege. And I know that we live in a broken world. I know that. I know that things happen to all of us. doesn't mean that you shouldn't strive for the privileges that Jesus has, watched, brought to us. Greater is he that's in me 
and he that's in the world. It's, it's time for Q&A. We've got about 12, 13 minutes. If there's any questions, anything that you want to jump on, ask about, inquire, even online, there are microphones to the left and to the right. Are there any questions? Val is coming. If you've got a question, please, you can go to this one as well. Let's go here, Val. Always a pleasure. Uh, to digest in what you, yeah. you just gave us. Um, and uh, where my confusion is, is where you said mm-hmm. that salvation does not start when you accept Jesus Christ. Right. Understand what I'm saying, though. Okay. It's when you and I actualize something that's finished. Okay. Remember we did this principle? If he invites Adam into a finished work, okay. we cannot argue that creation starts when Adam stepped into it. Okay. Creation was done. He stepped into something that was finished. He uses the same principle for salvation. The works are finished. Now I'm going to step in. The day I step in, that's the day that I start to experience it on my level, but it's already been accomplished for me in another level. That's what I mean by, hope I did that right. And, and I, I think I get that. Yeah. Where I'm struggling is what then does, what, what then happens to the person who doesn't actualize that in time? You forfeit privilege. Okay. So you forfeit privilege in time. What about eternity? Anything you forfeit in time has eternal ramifications. Okay. You see, you see what I'm saying? How it's so important. Watch. This is why, to me, when you talk about people going to hell, they're going to hell on the basis of something that's already been done for them. Okay. You see, when you think like that, you see the weight of responsibility given to those who are called to proclaim the gospel. That they, they did this in the Bible. They didn't play. Everywhere they went, they told the whole world the good news, didn't they? What do we do today? In all fairness, guys, we might mention it. We might say, hey, but we don't have that same urgency that they had in the scriptures. So that even when they were stoning them, beating them, jailing them, throwing them to the lions, they kept. <laughs> you know, the Bible says, he said, don't preach in that name again. <laughs> Do not preach in his name again. You bring his blood upon us. And just to seal it, they beat them. Bible said they went back to their place. They prayed. (laughs) Got up and went back up. And they said, didn't we tell you? Because I think they understood that so much privilege was being forfeited. That it drove them. So they became missional based on their understanding. I'm not so sure that we have that same missional approach to getting the world saved. So they had a sense of urgency. We've lost that sense of urgency. So can you imagine somebody stand before God, Val, and realize at that point that everything was done for them and no one with a sense of urgency brought that to them? I tend to believe that at some point God's going to step in and bring them to some awareness of some kind so that no one will have an excuse before God. But the greatest witness is when you and I share what God has done for us. And God takes that. Didn't he say that? Watch. Go ye. Every gospel writer closes his book by saying, go ye into all the world. Preach the gospel. Mark 16. 
Matthew 28. Repentant remission of sins should be preached beginning at Jerusalem in my name. That's, that's, that's the urgency that needs to come back to the body of Christ. But I also think we got to teach it properly. Tell them that there's something waiting for you. That if you believe, God will unlock it for you. It's done. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And, and, and here's where I'm trying to... Because there is this aspect of... Yes. Um, accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, what I'm trying to figure out in my head mm-hmm. is... If, if there is a, re- I mean, I, there is definitely a relationship, but it, is that just an aspect of salvation or is that salvation in itself? Now, I understand that salvation has already been done because when we think about the whole aspect of accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, yes. what we read from the book of John is that, you have access to the kingdom. Yes. So you see and you can enter. Yes. But there is no real um, mention there about sin in, in, from the perspective of salvation. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking at it from what you've said now, which is that the sin of the world has already been forgiven, yes. right? It's, God has already done that work. Yes. And when we come to that realization... Is that, a, is, there, is that different from accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Is, is there a difference between coming to that realization and accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Can I or say are they one and the same thing? One and the same, meaning once I come to that knowledge, it only makes sense that I accept him. Okay. So one leads to the other. Once you bring me to the knowledge of what God has done, who Jesus is, I, I don't, and I think that's where God can judge someone because if you come to the knowledge of who Jesus is, what he's done for you, and what he has made available for you, for you to reject that, God has the wherewithal to say. Did you see what I'm saying? So then, but so it, knowledge it just, is not head knowledge. It's not just no, it, it, theoretical. It, it's yeah. practical knowledge. Of yeah, it. there's something that faith does where it grounds me in the knowledge that some things have been done on my behalf that, you know what, can I say this? They have eternal ramifications. I act upon that faith vow. I come and I make him Lord. I think, I think that's what hell, why the struggle is, I believe in hell, I hope you do, the scripture teaches it. But if there are people there, they're going to be there and they don't have to be there. Would you not agree? It's, it's like the greatest gift. Mm-hmm. When Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 8 or 9, he says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. There aren't even words to describe this gift that God has prepared for those that would believe. The urgency of the church is to convince the world through word and deed that there's a gift sitting there and you're walking by it every day. And it's a gift of life everlasting. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you. My God. Any, any other thoughts? Even online, I don't know if anything came through online. Gina's coming. Please, everyone, we've got five minutes. Gina? Thank you, Pastor. Such, thank you for breaking it down. Like I that. love it. Especially the move from uh, leaving, to, leaving bread to living bread. That, that was... Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. Um, just to append to what uh, Pastor Val was saying, yeah. how do we, in a world that is so politically correct, 
present, like, because I hear what you're saying, but in, in the world of the apostles, that world in, um, they had the urgency. But in our world, uh, yes, we should have the urgency, but um, I think what maybe lets us cower, because we're in such a world that is, you can't say that, you can't this. It, it's okay, such a world okay. that is so politically infused. Charged. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, can't. Yeah, yeah. You know, just to say, look, I, I remember I was at work, the other, and I, I can't even remember exactly what I said, but someone called me on it, and I was like, wow. Yeah. It was just, it wasn't even said with that, with that um, implication. It was right, said right. because I'm just talking. I thank God. So how do we I thank God reconcile. that he's moved the world to a place where the church now has to move beyond words to manifestation. Yes. You know what I said? I thank him because that's our problem. We stay in the word realm. Nothing wrong. But the word realm is not as great as manifestation realm. Remember I told you on Sunday, the greatest way to demonstrate our faith is to live it in the world. The word became and dwelt. And what happened? And we beheld the glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. That's where I think God, and I thank him. Because I think, regardless of what you want to say about the devil, I know his hand is in this. There's also a sovereign orchestrator of time. Yes. And so God has permitted certain things in our world to force us out of just... Because <laughs> after a while, you know the old adage, talk is... Can I show you something? We look at the apostles and think their world was easy, easier than ours. If you dared to speak that there was another king other than Caesar. They, were lived, they lived under what's called a Roman uh, protectorate of whom Caesar was king. And that's what they chose. So there's this guy, Paul, who dares to assert that there's another king, one Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's called treason. <laughs> that's worthy of death. And they knew that every single time. Not to mention the position of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Sadducees who had sold out to the Romans and didn't want their positions even affected. And the disciples decided that, you know what? For Christ I live, for Christ I die. Another thing, Gina, I would say this. When we realize what's available, we'll also see the urgency of unity in the body of Christ. It's another challenge we have, and that's another reason why we are so easily defeated and other groups are able to get their agendas together because they can come together, whether it is around commonalities or a common cause. I, I think the LGBTQ plus group is a perfect example. It's a headless movement, like the church should be a headless movement, meaning you don't know who the head is, <laughs> but you see the manifestation in the unity of the body and they get things done once we realize the urgency and maybe gina what might be what might be coming is god's gonna force us by moving society against us covid should have taught us something i don't think it did <laughs> what do you think i think we endured it then we came back to the same old stuff just go on gospel connections same old stuff here we go again, concert this, concert. We're back to the same old thing. It's like we didn't learn anything in that moment. It didn't watch. Agree with me? It didn't drive us together. 
It didn't drive us to our knees. It didn't drive us to some sort of consolidation that we didn't have an answer for this one, God, and something else might be coming. We better... Just did the same old, same old. Something else is coming that's going to force our hand so that we can display my position, brothers and sisters. It may be challenged. God wins in the end. So something's going to happen. It's just Pastor Michael again, where God is going to harvest the earth and he's going to pull souls from the east the north, the south, and the west, and those unfulfilled passages like Isaiah 2, when all nations start flowing up to the house of God, saying, teach us your laws, that's coming. And he's going to bring some of us. For me, I'm trying my best, because I think he's also going to humble a lot of us who dare to stand up here as leaders, cut us down and put us on our, in our rightful place. As well one to the shepherds that... And half of the problem today in the body of Christ centers up here with how we lead, how we interact with each other as leaders. He's going to do some things in the body to bring out this, watch, glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And just one more point. Thank you, Pastor. Just one more point. Um, You said that um, the benefits, like... um, or salvation, it's there, and it's like yes. you forfeit it because you didn't really come to that full actualization. Yes. I was just thinking when you were saying that, how does that, in terms of healing, like healing, same, Jesus says same this, thing. so same thing, same that's what thing. I was thinking. So even for those who've come to the knowledge of it, inside of it, there are benefits that we sometimes don't actualize, even though we're saved. Hmm. Do you follow what I'm saying? So remember I said earlier, sometimes I find that we, I, live far below, what did I say the word was? Privilege. So even after you come to the knowledge of salvation, you step in and you're born again, guess what? Salvation begins to unpack the privileges of new birth. And so there's things that Jesus calls, watch, the children's bread. It belongs to them. And didn't he put healing and deliverance there? It's not meat for me to take the children's bread and give it to the what was that woman asking for deliverance from demonic oppression in her daughter and jesus called deliverance from demons the children's bread (laughs) so maybe if i switch my prayer and say to god this is my bread where's my bread (laughs) in jesus name maybe he might move because he sees that i understand his word and i know the privilege is given unto me Give us this day our daily bread. Citizenship has its privileges, doesn't it? Thank you, Gina. I'm going to be here for a little while if you want to talk about this eternal salvation out there. And uh, we pray God help Rama. Robert, I'll take your questions. Everyone, just pause for a second. Let's lift our hands just for a moment. I'll take your questions, Robert. Let's ask God to help us as a body, as a ministry, as a church. Even if Rama is not your church and you're watching us online, doesn't matter to me help the body God help the body even in my brokenness even in my failures and my shortcomings help the body father those watching online that would watch throughout the course of a week a month help the body everyone agree with me unify the body bring the body a sense of urgency
that the night all is far spent the day is at hand we want to teach the world to trim your lamps and let your lamps be burning for the master comes at an hour that we know not when help us god to be proclaimers of this gospel to every creature on our jobs in our social times in our homes our communities wherever you place us our schoolrooms our hallways in the malls by the leading of the spirit whatever you teach us to say we will speak it in that moment in the name of Jesus bless the body bless the body god bless the universal global church of Jesus Christ bless the church and by that you would have blessed us in Jesus name amen robert we'll take your question and then we'll go home tonight thank you pastor for uh, all the teachings you, tonight we are grateful yeah. um from what you taught us unity is very essential for the body of Christ and for the spirit to move. Robert, can you pause for a second everyone? He said essential. Can we say this? Unity is everything. How do I say that, Robert? Because a body that's not unified is sick. <laughs> no? If the liver doesn't cooperate with the lungs of that what happens? It's dysfunctional, it's sick. So until the church is unified, there will be dysfunction in a body that's not designed to be dysfunctional it's everything go ahead robert uh since unity is essential and unity is a, a decision as you taught us yes but not necessarily just by prayer how what are some of the practical and pragmatic steps we can take as a body or as an organization to hammer home this to achieve the benefits of unity and one accord. Let's do something very simple. Number 1, practical step. Let's every one of us let's desire unity. It's very simple, right? Nothing out there. Let's desire unity. Number 2, Robert, let's pray for unity. And then when we are able, let's behave in a unified manner in our own ministry. Right? because how can we unify the global body if within our own local house we operate in disunified ways or propagate disunity word or speech so first we desire it we pray for it and then we be it ourselves in our own house and then understand watch to be unified doesn't mean that you're going to agree with everything in that moment But you know what? I trust you God. It's a principle. I'm going to be unified. And as I follow on to know, I'm going to know. We can start there. I I I don't think we'll do anything more if we desire it, if we pray it, if we beat in our local houses, if this ministry strives for that and that ministry and that ministry, all of a sudden what we do on the individual level becomes the collective. the collective is not something that's ethereal it is the outgrowth of the individual isn't it so what i don't know i was and maybe that's why god keeps it a secret i wasn't in the upper room with them and luke does not tell me what they said and did <laughs> but 
whatever they said and did, watch, men and women. That's another story in their world, right? Men and women got together and decided after 10 days that we're coming out of this room on one accord. That's a musical term. We, we, we're singing the same song, same note. We have everything in one accord. God said, I, I, I have no other choice. Remember I told you this, that they did that without the Holy Ghost? You know how they were able to? Because they remembered that in Genesis 11, a whole bunch of people got together without the Holy Ghost. And God said, behold the people. Watch, God even has to change his language. God becomes, watch, syntactically wrong. He says, behold the people is one. <laughs> he didn't even say are. He said, they is one. Now, nothing that they desire to do will be withheld from them. Pentecost, by the way, Robert, is the reversing of the Tower of Babel. They did that, it brought confusion because their motives were wrong. They did that in the book of Acts, it brought unity. The Spirit came. In both cases, God came down, didn't He? Watch, on the day of Pentecost, what did He do? He scattered them. On the day of Pentecost, He brought people together. And here's where it becomes more powerful. And when Peter spoke, and the others spoke, this is true speaking in tongues, everyone listening said, how hear we the gospel in our own language? You see, that's the highest purpose of speaking in tongues. Not, I mean, I'm not going to denigrate this. Speak in tongues in your worship. That's unto God. Do all of that. But the highest purpose is that people who haven't heard the gospel would hear it in their own language. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Can I teach a little bit more? Do you know that they asked the question? Peter didn't do an altar call. You know that, right? Peter didn't do what I do every Sunday. Is there anyone here that wants to give their lives to the Lord? The altars are open. Peter didn't do that. Peter finished saying what he was saying. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do to be saved? The question came, can you imagine Robert on a Sunday, if I finished ministry or whomever, and the question comes from the congregation, pastor, what shall we that's a whole different place, right? Amen. Peter just goes and says, you know what he said, just repent, be baptized in the name of, for the remission. That day, 3,000 souls, they spent the whole day baptizing. Hmm? That makes sense, Robert? Yes, sir. Thank you so much. What do we want? Unity. When do we want it? <laughs> I thought you'd understand that in a protest culture. What do we want? What do we want it? Hey, hey, ho, ho, division's got to go. Hey, hey, ho. Stand on your feet, everyone. We love you so much. God bless you. Lift your hands, everyone. God's doing something. And he's going to continue doing it until the coming of Jesus. I lift my hands because even online, I want to be a part of the move of God. I raise my hand because I want him to use me. And I make myself available to God. Here am I, God. Say that. Send me. Who shall go for us? 
But here am I, God. Send me, send my children. In Jesus' name. May God bless us continually. In the name of Jesus. 